a good day, isn't it? I love this house. So good. Well, <clears throat> I think one of the biggest keys to walking in healing, walking in deliverance, walking in breakthrough, walking into what we are destined to walk into, I really believe the more and more I study the Song of Songs, the more and more I have my relationship with God, that the key to all of it is just getting lost in intimate relationship with the Father. Amen. Works does not get you healed. Works does not get you saved. It's just simply a kiss from the Almighty. And he wants to kiss you because he says you're worthy. We've been in this series, The Song of Songs. We're in week three, and the first two weeks I was preaching on the first four verses of, about being, becoming lovers of God and um, the intimate places with God. And tonight, as I was praying about what to talk about, he gave me a phrase, and I, I decided to call on the, the message this. Tonight's message is called this, The Song of Delight. I'm, I don't know if you know this, but, you know, we're called to delight in the Lord. But a lot of people forget that the Lord actually takes delight in you. And that's why it's not so far-fetched to think that the Lord can heal me. Because if he takes delight in me, then anything that doesn't look like him, he says, that ain't a part of my child. Amen. The song of delight. I'm going to pray and we're going to get right into this message. God, so good tonight. Lord, we thank you for the healing that just happened. We thank you for the healing that's continuing to happen. And God, right now, we don't want to hear my words, my thoughts, or my opinions. We just want to hear your truth. Thank you for taking delight in us, Jesus. We love you. Holy Spirit, say what you want to say. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> the Song of Songs, the ballad, the love song between the marriage of the bride and the groom. I believe the key to this whole book is reading it and seeing what's hidden. Because many read this book of the Song of Songs and attribute it to just a sexual book for a man and a woman, but there's so much more. There's a word thrown around a lot in theological studies in the church when studying scripture. It's the word hermeneutics. You ever heard that word hermeneutics? And some people know what it is, some people don't. Some people just don't care. You know, wave your hands in the air if you just don't care, right? <laughs> Oh, I, hey, listen, we just pray for people, I can be lame. <laughs> Hermeneutics is simply this. It's the theory or the practice of interpretation. It's the idea that when you read the Bible, it's what lens do you read it through. That's essentially what hermeneutics is. And personally for me, I believe that there is one true way to read the Scripture. We can take hermeneutics classes and read all kind of stuff, but I'm just going to give you a really quick you know, theological course right here in two seconds. Everything in this scripture is about the kingdom of God being restored on the earth. And when we, need, we read this word, we need to start reading it in the idea that everything in it points toward God kissing the bride. When reading through the Bible... We need to read it through the lens of where is Jesus in this and how does this help his bride bring heaven down. If you start reading all scripture through that lens, people always ask me, how do you get some of the stuff you're getting? I'm going to tell you right now, every single scripture I read through this lens, where is Jesus in it and how does this help the bride bring heaven down? You start reading it like that, 
you're going to see stuff that you never heard preached. Okay? So when we read this book, the Song of Songs, we've got to read it as a story of how Jesus makes his bride beautiful and how we are to put on the wedding clothes of a marriage, if you will, between God and his bride, the church. You are his bride. You are who he came for. As we go into the rest of this chapter, we see, if you will, a conversation between God and the church, the bride and the groom, if you will. The bride, at, up to this point in the first four verses, the bride has said to the bridegroom, or in this case the woman, the Shulamite woman, to the king, she's saying, kiss me, kiss me again, your love is sweeter than wine. Your name is like a fragrant oil. And we talked about how that simply means that God, King, your love fulfills every desire. And your name is so good that like a fragrance of oil, the atmosphere shifts when your name is glorified. A lot of times we want our atmospheres to shift. We want our home life better. We want our work life better. We want our relationships better. I say to you, start bringing his name into that place and you'll see the shift. You want your family restored? Start bringing his name into the family. Instead of just on the weekends. That's pretty much the message. Start bringing his name into it. He says the kiss is an invitation for God to get involved more and more in allowing him to fulfill every desire. Every desire. I talked last week about how in Corinthians it talks about it's better to marry than to burn with passion. We always attribute that to, you know, sex before marriage or purity and all that. I took it in a little bit of a different direction. That passion actually means to, to suffer. The passion of the Christ was that he was willing to suffer on the cross for us. And the idea of the bride, the church, to the bridegroom, God, it is, very, it is better to marry into the relationship with the Father than to burn with passions that you're trying to fulfill yourself. You burn with passions in life. You want things. You want certain things. Maybe it's riches. Maybe it's lovers. Whatever it is, we want these things. And God says, you get married to me, and I'll give you permanent sustenance in all the things that you're trying to get by your own hand. It is, it is better to enter into marriage with the bridegroom than to try to do everything yourself. So it's talking about this kiss, this invitation of God, fulfill every desire. Let me be yours. Let me be your bride. And then in verse 4, it shifts a little bit. And today, I've been reading uh, just the first part, but I'm going to read both parts of verse 4 to you. The, the parts are basically the Shulamite woman talking, and then there's a chorus of all of her friends called the women of Jerusalem. So the first part of this simply says this. She says, take me with you. Come, let's run. Now, some of this will be reviewed tonight, but it's necessary to get this message. And I really feel like the Lord's saying, keep on talking about it until we get it. Okay? There's something happening. Do you, you, see, you see what's in this room? Did you see the altar filled? Something's happening. And I believe we're getting to understand that we, we, we don't want to, 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 our goal is not grow the church. Our goal is we want to get intimate with the Father. And the fruit is the church. The fruit is a revealed bride. The fruit is a bride walking into the, all the earth and everything that we go into, it starts to submit to the bridegroom we carry with us. 
So it says in verse 4, take me with you, come, let's run. The king has brought me into his bedroom. Let us run away, Lord, into your chambers. We talked about how the bedroom, the chambers, in the, the literal Greek and Hebrew is the most holy place, referring to the place of his presence. The Passion Translation we read said, let's go away into a cloud-filled chamber. The reason for the cloud-filled chamber is because the scripture says that we cannot see God face to face. You know that? Because if we saw him face to face, we'd die. So in the most holy place, they would burn incense. They would have these incense burners and they would walk back and forth until the entire place, guess what, filled up with smoke like a cloud. So that basically what God was doing, he says, I so desire face to face encounters, I'm going to make the impossible possible. I so desire to be present with you in the room that I'm going to create a way for a face-to-face to happen without you dying. And it was the, the cloud. It was the glory. It was just like today when we lift up praises, it's we lift up praise as incense unto the Lord because it creates a place where God can be with us and present, but we don't see his literal face because we cannot handle it. Right? Now, is this okay so far? All right. All my my stuff. I will. He says, in other words, I no longer want the appearance of my face to cause you harm. So I've created a way for us to get together in a literal sense. The presence of God is a revelation that he is literally here. The presence of God is not an experience. The presence of God is not just an atmosphere. When we say we are in the presence of God, we are recognizing that God is actually literally in the room. So we go from this atmosphere idea of presence to the person of presence. Now here's why I'm telling you this. We often hear a scripture, and don't put it up there yet, but it's in Exodus 20, and the scripture says this, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And what, the, and what churches have taught for years is that simply means don't use foul language. Now, I'm still going to support that, but I'm going to put forth to you that that is not what the scripture is only talking about. If the name of God is the thing that causes an atmosphere to shift, remember it says the name of God is like a fragrant oil. When we call upon the name of the Lord, we believe that the atmosphere shifts. We believe the place starts to smell like him, look like him, sound like him. Would you agree that we, were in the, we are in the presence of God tonight? There is something different. Do you, do you agree? Well, if, if, if calling on the name of God causes a shift in the atmosphere, and if we are to carry his name by way of representation, taking his name in vain is representing him, but the atmosphere you carry looks nothing like him, sounds looking, nothing like him, and, doesn't hear, and, and, and does not shift the atmosphere like him. Taking the Lord's name in vain is you walk into a place, you walk into a conversation, you walk into a relationship, and even though you claim you bring his atmosphere, the atmosphere they see has nothing to do with him. 
You want me to say that again? Taking the Lord's name in vain, you walk into a room under the banner of you are the Lord's most high. Therefore, when you walk into a room, everything changes. But if the change is not a mirror image of God, you just took his name in vain. Because you have failed to recognize that you literally carry the name and presence of God everywhere you go. And we should never take it lightly. This good? He says, I've given you access to the most holy place. And this is how you're going to let people see me? This is how you're going to let people carry my name? In the passage in Exodus 27, it says this, you must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. You know the principle of you reap what you sow? He says, I'm not going to hold back with what you reap if you sow into taking my name in vain. We wonder, why did God let this happen to me? Would you like to know? Because we're probably guilty of taking his name in vain. We take his name into all these avenues of life. When you go into these avenues, the way you raise your kids, the way you treat your spouse, the way you, 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 you build relationship with the church family, the way you honor your boss, the way you honor your mother and father, the way you, you, you are humble. If you take his name into all these areas, they should begin to know and see your God. And the reason we don't do it is because we have lost intimacy. We've lost closeness. We've lost familiarity. And it's a foreign idea to bring the name of God into every situation. When I heard that I had another tumor, my first thought was not, oh no. My first thought was, it ain't sticking. Because in that doctor's room, I carried the name and a tumor can't survive in his name. And we have got to start getting so lost and so ridiculous in our faith that we're not going to let the logic of our mind talk us out of the possibility of a supernatural encounter. Yeah. I'm going to get in that in a minute. If we will begin to remember that he is here, the way we carry ourselves will start to shift into that revelation that he is with me wherever I go. And therefore, things will shift. So, how do we walk out this idea? Intimacy. We've talked about it. God, draw me in. Kiss me so that we can go into the most holy place, your very presence, wherever I go. This is the second part of verse 4. Throw it up there. How happy we are for you. Now remember, she was talking, and now her friends are talking. How happy we are for you, O king. We praise your love even more than wine. How right they are to adore you. These friends, these women of Jerusalem, are saying we are happy. We're rejoicing. And you, king, are rightly adored by the bride. We praise your love. You know what they're doing? They are taking delight in the king as they see he is worthy of such a pursuit. I believe that people will start to take delight in Jesus when they see a people start to pursue him more than ever before. You know why revivals don't work? Because revivals have become, let's get a great speaker 
and a great worship team and it's full of people who are not pursuing him. We get the best stuff on stage and the entire room is filled with people who just simply love him but have not become lovers. We walk into true revival when everyone walks into the revelation of, I don't want to just love God, I want to become a lover of God. I want to pursue him with every part of me. I want to pursue him with my money. I want to pursue him with my relationships. I want to pursue him with the way I talk to my boss. I want to pursue him with the way I forgive my family that I don't want to forgive. I want to, I want, I want to pursue him in every single avenue. I want to pursue him so much that I, can't not, I cannot get enough of being in the presence of his name. That's when revival happens. When we become hungry, passionate lovers for intimacy, where everything is God, kiss me again, kiss me again. I want more of you. I want more of you. If we ever get to a place where we say we've been to church too much, I say that you have not truly understood what it means to become a lover. Is this okay? They're taking delight in this king. Psalm 37, 4 says, take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desire. I say this, be careful what you find yourself delighting in. Because oftentimes what we delight in is the thing we're trying to get to fulfill a desire. And the Lord says, I see what you're doing. You're taking delight in that thing and you're getting that satisfaction but he says, if you will take delight in me, I will give you whatever satisfaction you were trying to get out of that thing you took delight in. He says, because things go away. Solomon, the wisest man ever, he wrote Proverbs, he wrote the Song of Songs. He actually writes this in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. He says in verse 2, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Thanks, God. <laughs> Everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. Verse 9. History merely repeats itself. It's all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Y'all have heard this, right? If you think you're going through something new that no one's ever gone through, wake up. And that should encourage you because someone's gone through it, which means they know what breakthrough looks like. The problem is we don't like to get transparent about what we're going through because we think it's new. There's nothing new. Therefore, nothing should be surprising. It's not a surprise of, oh my gosh, I can't believe. It's let's walk through that because we've gotten through this before. So he says, everything's meaningless, nothing's new. Now this is what he goes to in verse 16. I said to myself, look, I am wiser than any of the kings who ruled in Jerusalem before me. Solomon's a pretty wise dude. I have greater wisdom and knowledge than any of them. He's just speaking facts. So I set out to learn everything from wisdom to madness and folly. But I, I learned firsthand that pursuing all of this is like chasing the wind. Watch this. The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. Solomon, the wisest man, learned this. When you take delight in seeking knowledge, it increases your grief. 
It increases your sorrow, a sense of loss, a sense of misfortune, a sense of distress. Distress. What does that mean? Because knowledge simply means to know something. So what happens is we were never designed to know everything. We were only designed to know him. But the human condition is driven by, I want to experience this, or I want to experience that, or I want to try that at least once in my life. And Solomon says, I did that, and let me tell you how it turns out, grief and sorrow. Because in knowing something, it's getting familiar with an idea. It's getting familiar with a concept. And that's why a lot of times we're losing this age gap between 18 and 25 because those are the years where they try to know things. And where the church is failing is teaching them all you need to know is one person. And we start to try to know all these things. We're building relationship with all this stuff. And Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing more to learn other than one thing. Know who he is. Because the more you know, the more you begin to delight in the thing you're, you're knowing. So he says, if you will put all of your, uh, your drive into knowing him, that means in knowing him, he is who you begin to delight in. And when you start to delight in him, he will give you all the desires that you were trying to find in other delights. I can't tell if this is... Knowing, to know something is to become familiar through relationship. It is an intimacy with things that have replaced an intimacy with God. If you take delight in knowing God, he will fulfill every desire that you try to achieve by knowing something else. The others in the Song of Song, these women, they were saying it is right to adore and take delight in the king. And if it's right to take delight in the king, it is not right to take delight in any other thing than him. Why? So that our expression of love and delight is simply a flow from knowing God. If we get lost in knowing him, knowing, getting close, getting familiar, I've never heard the voice of God, we'll start to take delight in him. Start to take time to just Listen to the whispers. One thing God has told me this year is to turn one of my uh, bedrooms at my house into a prayer room where I just go in and sit for at least an hour and just listen. And it's funny how many people say, I can't hear God, but you never carved out time to get to know it. That's a word for someone. You having trouble hearing? Make room to know. Make room for the most holy place. Right? Oh. This, is, this, is, this is good stuff. <clears throat> he says, when you begin to speak things, like I can't stand her, I can't stand him, I can't stand they, we're actually beginning to take his name in vain because those words are not the fragrant oil meant for the room. Now this Shulamite woman in verses 1 through 4, is taking delight. She's inviting the king. She's come. She's got access to the chamber, the most holy place, the bedroom. But then there's a shift. 
I mean, I think that's pretty cool that she's, she's wanting intimacy with the king, the church, intimacy with the father. She's getting that access. Not everyone got that with the king. She did. We do. Amen? Amen. But there's a shift at the end of verse 4. I want to read it again. How happy we are for you, O king. We praise your love even more than wine. How right they are to adore you. The women of Jerusalem, they're rejoicing. They're taking delight. And she she says, how right they are to adore you. How right these women are to adore the king. Now, they are not just taking delight in the king. They are rejoicing in the king who is worthy. And they're taking delight and a bride who was chosen. And when the king chooses you, you are brought in, you're made worthy, and when you're made worthy, you are made sane. I talked about this a little bit last week, review from last week, Hebrews 10, 19. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter into the most holy place. Let me read that in Kyle's version. We can boldly enter into heaven's chambers because of the blood of Jesus. In the Greek, we learn that that word sister is actually, y'all remember? Brother. One person listened. So it says, so dear brothers, because in Christ we're one. There's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no male, there's no female. He sees us. We are same. Brother in the Hebrew references same, of same parents, same relatives, same tribe, same resemblance. He's saying, brothers and sisters, when you enter into the most holy place, I view you as same kind as the divine nature. The reason he wants to see you as same kind is because a law he puts out for his people that he would not ask his son to do either. This is the law in 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked. With unbelievers. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? This is what we talked about. God does not want a believer to be yoked up with an unbeliever. You agree? He wants him to be sane. So when he sends his son to marry the church, he doesn't want his son to look like something that's not sane. He wants his son to be equally yoked. So he says, I'm going to make you right for the marriage. I'm going to make you sane. You're going to share in divine nature. You're going to share in the ability to see people raised from the dead. You're going to to see and share in the ability to see sickness disappear without a bill. Thought I would got to amen with that one. (laughs) He says, I'm letting my son marry, but it has to be to sane. We can share in that divine nature. But in knowing this, and knowing that we've been made same, and knowing that he chose us, and knowing that we've been made worthy, we do exactly what this Shulamite woman is about to do. She celebrates how right it is to adore the king, but then she speaks over herself. And this is what she says in verse 5. I am dark, but beautiful. O women of Jerusalem. You see how this conversation, she's talking back to him? I'm dark but beautiful, O women of Jerusalem. Dark as the tents of Kedar, dark as the curtains of Solomon's tent. You can leave that up there. 
She considers taking delight in the king as very appropriate. But, as, but she begins to not take delight in herself because she still sees herself as unworthy. She says, I am dark as the tents of Kedar. I am dark as the curtains of Solomon's tents. For those of you who may not know, Kedar was actually the second son of Ishmael, the grandson of Abraham. Kedar was faithful to false gods. Matter of fact, in Scripture, it talks about how one of the qualities of Kedar was he was more faithful to his false gods than you church people are to the real one. That hurts, doesn't it? Now, we make fun of other religions, but I see commitment with them. All right. Kedar was faithful to false gods and was spoken against many times. Kedar actually became a tribe for Arabs. They traveled, and when they traveled, they were nomadic, and guess what they stayed in? Tents. These tents were made with a specific kind of hair, and the hair was actually a black hair. And the black hair that covered these tents was exposed to sun and rain. To dwell in the tents of Kedar was basically you were, you were cut off from any sort of worship from God and you were, you were hidden in these black tents. Solomon's curtains were covered, with, that, that were covered with this same kind of material, actually. And the outward covering wasn't so great. It was exposed to weather. It became very dark. It was exposed to sun. But inside the tents of Kedar and Solomon's tents were riches, majesty, and in Solomon's tents, beautiful tapestries. And this woman was talking about how dark she was. Just like the black hair of the tent, she was talking about how beaten she was and bruised up by her natural life. She says, I'm dark. Yet I'm beautiful. The coverings, the natural self, has been beaten, has been bruised. But the inside, I'm full of beautiful tapestry. I'm beautiful on the inside. But this is what happens. The woman is saying this. I'm beautiful on the inside, but I'm wretched on the outside. God has made me wonderful on the inside, but look at my life. And that is exactly what the body of Christ tends to do. We say, yeah, I've got Holy Spirit. God dwells in me. He sees me as holy. He sees me as worthy. But then we start talking about the butts, the outward workings, the history of the dark being beaten by the world. We say, yeah, God's made me beautiful, but I did this. God made me beautiful, but I went through this. God has made me worthy, but I've gone through this. And before you know it, you allow God to take delight in your spirit, but you won't take delight in anything else because your natural life has been so bruised and so beaten and, and has gone through so much torment. And before you know it, you take more delight in your insufficiencies than your sufficiencies. And then what happens is when God says, I've got an assignment for you, you say, look at the outer covings of my tent. It happens in this room. There's people in here with incredible assignments, and you say no because no one wants to hear that from me. What you're failing to recognize is no one cares about the tent. 
There is something in you that is valuable. And God says, I'm seeing you as worthy, not based off what life has done to you, but what I have given you access to. We fail to recognize our worth, and then we limit ourselves as worthy according to the shortcomings of our flesh. Rather, embrace how worthy we truly are according to the king. Now, the Passion Translation has this scripture a little different. It actually has a conversation between the bride talking this out herself and the groom. This is what it says in the Passion Translation. It says, Jerusalem maidens, in this twilight darkness, I know I am so worthy, so in need. And this is what the king says, yet you're so lovely. And then she says, I feel as dark and dry as the desert tents of the wandering nomads. Remember, what what were the nomads? The tents of what? Kedar. And you know what the, the groom says, the king? Yet you are so lovely, like the fine linen tapestries hanging in the holy place. Every time she brought up a shortcoming or an insufficiency, the king says, yet you're lovely, yet you're lovely. And I speak to you tonight that over every insufficiency that you want to list to the father, his response is, yet you're so lovely, yet you're so lovely. Yeah, but I've gone through this as a kid, yet you're so lovely. I'm struggling with this, yet you're so lovely. You don't know how I've had it, yet you're so lovely. I don't want to connect with people because I've been burned by people, yet you're so lovely. He, whatever you got, you are so Lovely. And you know how you walk into this revelation of how lovely you are? Intimacy. A kiss. You know what the problem with the church is? Is that we don't believe we're lovely. And when we don't believe we're lovely, we won't give him everything because we disqualify ourselves from the one who has overqualified you. Why do I say overqualified? Because he is strong where you're weak. Every time she tries to identify as dark, the king reminds her of how he delights in who she truly is. God delights in you. Don't let your mind right now go to, you don't don't know. No, no, no. He knows. He delights in you. In Zephaniah 3.17, it says this. Some of y'all didn't know that that was a book. It says, "For for the Lord your God is living among you. Can I, can I talk this for a second? This is Old Testament. The Lord your God is living among you. He's a mighty Savior. The salvation message didn't start with Jesus. Jesus showed them what it was all along. That's another conversation. Join me for dinner tonight. I might talk about it. The Lord your God is living among you. He's a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. The Lord is rejoicing over you and taking delight in you. He sees you. He calms your fears. He sees you with love. He takes delight in you with gladness. He sees who you truly are. He doesn't see the black tents, if you will. And we're going to get to why I say black tents. They're dark. They're beaten. They're bruised. He says, no, no, no. That is not how I see you. I see how lovely you are. I see what inside and that's how I identify you. Stop disqualifying yourself. Psalm 18, 19 David talking, he led me to a place of safety. He rescued me because he delights in me. You want to know why he sent his son? You want to know why his son suffered at the cross? Not because he had to deal with it, but because he took delight in you. 
The new song that we've got to start singing over our lives as a people is, The Lord takes delight in me. He loves me. He is pleased with me. If you start believing that he's pleased with you and take delight in that, you'll actually start to please him. Because what we do is we try to turn it around. Let me work my way to be worthy. And God says, no, 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 just take delight in me so worthiness starts to be manifested. It's not get worthy, it's let it be revealed. The revelation of his delight causes you to take delight in him. This woman is saying, I'm dark on the outside, I'm I'm not worthy. And he says, yes, you are, yes, you are, yes, you are. In verse 6, she continues. She says, don't stare at me because I'm dark. The sun's dark in my skin. My brothers were angry with me. They forced me to care for their vineyard so I couldn't care for myself, my own vineyard. She's had a hard life, almost a Cinderella story, if you will. You know Cinderella? Y'all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's a common character. Sisters, stepmother, made her work. This is what she's going through. This girl says, I haven't had time to take care of myself. I haven't had time to put on makeup. I haven't had time to get a facial. I haven't had time to do any of that stuff. I've been out working in the vineyards all day long, and I've been bruised, and I have been beaten down by the sun, and I'm getting darker and darker and darker. Why? She was literally getting dark because she worked in the sun from her tan skin. The heat of persecution and oppression And hardships have changed her appearance, and she thinks she is less desirable. And God, the king, reminds her, no, 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 you're more than desirable. You're lovely. We so often begin to look at what we have gone through in life and think it has made us less desirable, and therefore we distance ourselves from intimacy and the father says no 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 none of that can never distance anything that i want i want all of you i want you familiar and i want you close you know it's it's funny because last week um at prayer on wednesday night if you missed prayer wednesday night it was incredible i mean just an hour and a half we were just praying and marco came up here and he was uh he, he, he's worked in the Baptist church for a long time, and he feels he was called here to, here to help us um, have a, race, a, 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 um, a, a multicultural breakthrough that this city has not seen. Can I speak to that for a second? Because we're not talking about, hmm, let's just call it real. We ain't talking about, as he said it, a, 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 a vanilla ice cream church with a couple of chocolate chips in the cookie dough. We're, we're not talking about a white church with color. We're talking about a true honor, multicultural breakthrough. And the reason I put that point that out is because he spoke that Wednesday and across this room, there is so much beautiful color. And it reminds me how we all may have different color tints, but inside he sees the same beautiful tapestry and we have got to learn if we want a multicultural breakthrough we've got to learn to not regard each other by the tent but start to be family based off of one thing we're all same we are the dwelling place of God 
Are you convinced that the heat of your persecution and oppressions have made you undesirable? She's been transfigured. She has been literally changed. But there is actually one thing that can change it. There is one thing that can change everything that this woman was calling down on herself. There is one thing that can change you. You know what it is? It's the kiss. In Exodus 33, it tells us that Moses would go to this tent of meeting. Not, not yet, Leah. Moses would go to this tent of meeting and would go inside the tent. When he would go inside this tent, a cloud would cover the front of it, and he would and hover over the entrance, and Moses would go in and talk to God. When Moses goes in, it says this in Exodus 33, 11. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. And that's interesting because this entire message, I've been talking about how we cannot see what? The face of God. Let's keep going. As one speaks to a friend. That's pretty cool. He was speaking to the one whose face will kill you as a friend. Moses understood intimacy before the cross. Because it's always been available. Afterward, Moses would return to the camp, but the young man who assisted him, Joshua, son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. Now, it goes on to say that Moses wanted to see God. So he's been in this face-to-face, but he's saying, God, let me see you. So he obviously has not literally seen the face of God. He's asking, let me see it. And God says, no, you can't see me. Any man who sees me, you're going to die. He says, but I will let one thing happen. He says, I will let my glory pass right in front of you. And when it did, Moses had a conversation with God about some instructions to manage the people. Interesting how he had such a close encounter with God and he was simply getting instructions to steward the people. The same as when the, as Solomon got all the wisdom, he simply said, how do I steward your people? So Moses was saying, how do I steward the people? He's having a conversation. For those that don't know, this ends up in the Ten Commandments. And what happens after this conversation, it says this in 34 verse 28, Moses remained there on the mountain with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. In all that time, he ate no bread and drank no water. This puts the Daniel fast to shame. We're going to do the Moses fast this year. The Lord wrote the terms of the covenant, the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets. When Moses came down, look, look at it. When Moses came down Mount Sinai, carrying the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant, he was not aware that his face had become radiant because he had spoken to the Lord. There was a literal shift in his tent coverings. It changed. Moses' outward appearance changed with a face-to-face encounter. Now, here's the interesting thing with the face-to-face encounter. The Lord was speaking to Aaron and Miriam about these meetings of Moses, and this is what God said in Numbers 12.8. I speak to him face-to-face, clearly, not in riddles. He sees the Lord as he is, so why are you not afraid to criticize my servant Moses? In the Hebrew, face-to-face literally means mouth-to-mouth. In, in, other word, in other words, Moses went into the most holy place in a tent of meeting and kissed God. And what happened with the kiss was that he walked out 
and everything that wasn't worthy in a moment shine ra radiant because he had an encounter with the glory of God. God delights in you so much that he will make a way by clouds, by the cross, and by glory just to kiss his bride so that you will become convinced of how lovely you are. You see, Jesus makes his bride beautiful. And all he asks us to do is put on the wedding clothes and start to look like a worthy bride. You want to know how we start to look like a worthy bride? You get convinced that you're worthy. And the only way to get convinced that you're worthy and to look past all the stuff that's happened to you in your life is to say, Lord, kiss me. I want to experience your presence. I want a face-to-face -face encounter. We must begin to try not and search out strategy or how to evangelize unless we get one thing right first, learning how tent colors can dwell together as one family where all we want to do is the same thing. We want the kiss of the Almighty. Many times we have this conversation with God in Song of Solomon 1.5. Put it up there again. But I'm going to read it like this. We say, God, I'm so, I'm so unworthy. I'm so in need. And he says, you are so lovely. We say, I feel like I'm not worthy. I, I feel the weight of all I've done in my life. And he says, you're lovely. I see you as fine linen tapestry, the same tapestry that I use to adorn my most holy place. You get that? He says, you look like the thing that hangs in my chambers. That's, that's, how, that's how lovely he sees you as. That's how worthy he sees you. He says, I know what you've gone through, but I see you as lovely. I see you as my bride that I want to kiss. And all I want you to do is yearn for me like I yearn for you. I want you to take delight in me like I take delight in you. The interesting thing here, remember I told you how the outside of the tents of Solomon and Kedar were black hair? It was actually black goat's hair. It was used because it could endure the sun and it essentially became waterproof. This is what's interesting. The same black goat hair used to cover the tents was actually the same thing used as sackcloth. You hear it in Revelations. The, the, the sun became as dark as sackcloth. You see, back in biblical times, sackcloth was worn as a symbol of one of three things. Sorrow, humility, or repentance. In other words, you can choose to live in the darkness of your sorrow or you can humble yourself to what God did and walk in your darkness as a life of repentance that shouts to the presence of the Almighty. Yes, you've gone through this, but repentance changed the direction. It's not look at what I've gone through. It's look at what I have gone through that has turned me back. You're redeeming the thing for the cause of Christ. You're not saying that God caused it. You're saying that I choose to identify this black, tarnished, sun-beaten life and use it as a testimony of no matter what came against me, I did not agree with it. I turned and walked into the kiss of the Almighty. And that is your song of delight. Nothing is going to stop me. Nothing can prevent me because the Father sees me as lovely. The Father sees me as worthy. He takes delight in you. 
Tonight, I simply want you to do this and understand this. Embrace how worthy you are. Embrace how lovely you are. And all he asks is one thing. Get close to me. Get close to me. This world does not need another great system. The answer to the issues in this world is to see a people that actually display a fiery pursuit of walking into the throne room. It's not we're getting excited to come to church to hear Pastor Kyle preach. It's not we're getting excited to come to church because we're going to have a good time in worship. It's we're excited to get with other believers because we are, have a passionate desire to get in the throne room. And when we get together, we're starting to convince each other we're lovely. You're lovely. You're lovely. I say to you that as we leave here tonight, let every word that comes out of your mouth is speaking to how lovely your husband is, your wife is, your kids are. You know, one thing about taking delight in God is you don't thank him for your spouse or your kids because of what they give to you. You thank God because he gave them to you because he loves you that much. He says, I gave this to you because you were worthy of it. Can I go further? <clears throat> you know why he brought us all here in this house? Because he says, as bruised up and tarnished as the tents might be, this is a people who are worthy of each other. And he says, pursue me together. Yes. That's the call. The song of delight. He takes delight in you. Amen. Let us take delight in him. Amen. Let's stand. Can we give God praise tonight? There's going to be some prayer workers up here. If you need prayer for anything, it's available to you. And I just want to say to you as we leave out of here, the altar call is simply this. Walk in the reality that he delights in you and calls you lovely. Amen. Jesus, we thank you. We delight in you. We love you. Can we just tell him how good he is? Tell him you love him. God, we love you. You're worthy. And God, we, we, we commit tonight that we are no longer going to talk about how unworthy we are, rather how lovely we are, because we are not walking into an identity that is anything other than what you see. God, I ask for you to give us that lens tonight for us to see as you see, speak as you speak, so that your bride can start to look like your bride, so that this world would be saved. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Love you guys.